brought to you from Melbourne, Australia. This is the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, where we talk badminton, celebrate local heroes, interview players from all walks of life, and push you to grow as a player and a person. Introducing your hosts, Jeff and Henry. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Henry. Welcome to another episode of the Badminton Podcast. My co-host is Jeff and he's here with me as well. And this is a Volant initiative. So what is Volant? Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey so that we can show the world how incredible our sport is. So make sure you check us out. Check out our badminton basics at www.volantwear.com. We're super excited to be here today on our way to releasing 100 episodes to everybody. But before we get started, we just wanted to thank you, the listeners, for making this podcast possible. Without you, there wouldn't be a Badminton podcast. So thank you for continuing to listen, support us, and share our episodes. So if you do enjoy the episodes we release, it would mean a great deal to us if you support us at patreon.com slash the Badminton podcast, where a few dollars a month can really make a huge difference. So... It's time for Jeff to introduce our podcast guest for the episode. Thank you, Henry, and welcome everyone that's listening. Really pumped to be introducing you to Nathan Tang, our guest for today. So he is a men's singles player from Australia, and he's on track to represent his country. At the 2021, it was previously the 2020, but the 2021 Thomas Cup. He's currently based in Melbourne, training and coaching full-time, and he's hoping that his journey to where he is today can inspire his younger teammates and younger generations to continue badminton into their mid-20s because that is a common thing that does happen in our country anyway, where a lot of players do drop out when they hit kind of that senior age or in the young 20s. So really great to see Nathan doing that and living this legacy currently. But outside of badminton, he does enjoy several other things, such as mountain biking, even though he's going to tell you about a fall that he had, which busted up his knee and he couldn't train for the whole week, but that's okay. And he's also said that he's terrible at every other sport other than badminton. So first of all, Nathan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Wow. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Jeff, for that introduction. That was pretty good. (laughs) So can you let us know what happened mountain biking? Because I don't know the full story yet. Oh, the full story. It was actually a pretty stupid accident. There was too much confidence. We kind of finished all the trails and we we're at the end of pretty much on the way home, really. And, you know, when you do all the hard stuff at the start and you finished it with our fall and you feel pretty confident. And I guess just on the way home, on the way back to the car, I just went a bit too fast. And to be honest, it all happened so quick. I think I might have braked or whatnot and I kind of just lost control and just rolled over. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, so it wasn't like a massive jump or anything. It was just kind of like too much confidence on the way back home into the car, like to the car park. Yeah, just lost focus. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't even mountain biking. It was like road biking. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my friend I was riding with, he told me the statistics of people falling over and apparently a big percentage of people fall over when they finish the track because you know you have the adrenaline pumping and all that stuff and it never really happened and then yeah it kind of happened to me so yeah pretty stupid (laughs) so now we can conclude that you're terrible at mountain biking as well yeah 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 it's pretty much true (laughs) i think the only sport that i'm good at seems to just be badminton yeah (laughs) (laughs) have you tried much other sport at all Yeah, yeah so before badminton, believe it or not, I played cricket and really? basketball. Yeah. <laughs> so I was also terrible at those. I think I preferred bowling because I was actually scared of the cricket ball. Yeah. It's pretty hard, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I actually didn't know the rules properly. So I was actually just piffing the ball as opposed <laughs> to actually bowling. Yeah. And I thought I was amazing because I was throwing it harder than all the other kids. Just bowling them out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, found out that was terrible. And then the other sport that I played at was basketball. And I actually did that for like five years. I actually trained that and tried to be good at it. But yeah, as I grew older, I kind of found out that it's not really a sport for me. <laughs> My height never really went up to like 180 or like 190. Okay. Yeah, and even like 180 these days for basketball is considered short, right? Like that's like the baseline. 
baseline's like 190 something or something ridiculous, right? Yeah, I think the average basketball player is like two meters tall or something like that. So yeah, I'm far from that. Awesome. So Nathan, we've been planning this podcast for a little while now for you to come on and tell your story and have a bit of a chat and open yourself up to some community badminton and love. But you've also mentioned that you do listen to the podcast each week. And I know you personally, we do spend quite a bit of time together on court training and you do tell me basically, okay, this was really interesting from this episode and this was interesting from this episode, but I'd love to just hear why you tune in every week. Like what is the value that you get out of it and why do you enjoy it? Yeah, well, it's a huge variety of people that you guys actually have on the podcast. I think the last one you guys had was David Turner. So he's an umpire. So yeah, you guys range from ex-players to current players. And it's really funny because at the end of the day, everybody seems to be really, I guess, passionate about the sport. It just makes you feel like you're part of this community. I think that's the big one because at times you do feel a little bit alone because badminton in Australia is definitely not a big sport. So just hearing players from America and Canada, especially, they're pretty much like relatable to us on how our situation is here. And then those guys are doing amazing. And that feels good because you start asking the question like, okay, these guys can do it. So why can't we do it? Or why can't I do it myself? And yeah, it's just a really good insight from different perspective of badminton. And adding to that topic there, you asked me a training the other day if I've seen the Carolina Marin series. And actually, I just got a free trial of Amazon Prime because I was buying something online and I thought I should just get it so I get free and fast postage. And then I realized I get the Amazon Prime on the TV, right? And I haven't started watching yet, but share insights about what you've seen there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I actually had to ask around. My friend's husband actually had an account, so I borrowed that. But yeah, it was really, really good. I think one of the things that they talked about was they had to find their own Spanish way of coaching badminton. Yeah. So I think the coach, Fernando... Rivas. Rivas, yes. Sorry about that. He was saying that, look, we couldn't copy what the Chinese do because if we do what we do, it's the carbon copy and we would never be better than them at it. So then it's really hard for us to be better than them. But then... If they go down to the Danish way, I don't think he actually said the Danish way, but if we try to do that, again, it's the same results where we'll be maybe similar to them, but we won't be ever better than them. So they had to find a Spanish way of coaching and it was completely different. And I think the coach was just saying that the whole organization in Spain thought he was crazy because, you know, it's impossible, but I think he proved them wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And without going into too much detail and telling everyone listening to the podcast exactly what happens, what is the Spanish way or what are some of the key aspects of the Spanish way? Wow. Well, I think there was a lot of sports science involved. I think Fernando was somewhat obsessed with statistics, how a particular player plays in a stadium. He would have that down to the T. So it can be playing a Japanese player and then it'll be like how she plays in this particular stadium. And then the following week, they'll be in another stadium and then they'll have other statistics of how she plays in this particular stadium. So I think that was pretty interesting because I've never heard of anything like that or it was just so detailed in that sense. That was pretty much it. That was different. I think people should definitely go watch it though. Awesome. I'm going to watch it at some stage as well when I get the time. So Nathan, just with regards to the podcast, again, if there's anything that you would want to hear on the podcast that would make the experience better for you, we're always open to feedback. What would that be? Oh, that's a tough one because I already feel like the podcast is so good. I'm not saying that because, you know, you're my coach slash friend and slash ex-teammate. It's actually genuinely got the whole variety. I guess you can blast social media a bit more. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe have snippets of it on Instagram. I don't know because to me, the podcast is really, really good. I mean, there's only really two badminton podcasts and one of them is by Hans Christian Wittinghus. And it's not that I don't listen to it, but I seem to be more tuned into this one because it's just, yeah, it's just got a good variety. Whereas Hans, 
he's got some big profile names, but I don't know. It's just different. It's mm. different. Uh, more relatable to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, it's, it's good that you say that. And definitely being on social, being more available or posting more content on social is something that Jeff and I have been discussing actually today. So it's definitely on the cards to watch that space, Nathan. Now, Nathan, moving on, I want to briefly talk about how we met. And then maybe Jeff can share how you guys met. And then we'd actually like to hear your badminton story specifically as well. But just for audience listeners out there, the first time I met Nathan was probably 10 to 11 years ago. I think I was in my first or second year of university playing Melbourne University tournament. And Nathan was actually quite friendly. I saw him play a match and he came over and said, hello, we had a good chat. And then I didn't get to see him for, I'd probably say six or seven years. Now, no offense to Nathan. When I first saw him play, he wasn't you know, super special that, like he is now. Certainly a much greater player these days than he was back then. But in the time that I didn't see him, he somehow has become a very, very great player. So I just thought I'd share that with everyone, especially because we are going to be talking about Nathan's story. And I'll leave that up to him to explain, but it certainly talks about starting badminton a bit later than most. So over to you, Jeff. Yeah. So the way I know Nathan is, yeah, I play with him. I help coach him at the moment as well. And I can't remember the first time we actually met, to be honest. Do you remember, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. I actually remember. It was um, 2012. I think we officially met then. We've always, or I've always heard you, Jeff, because you were always that player that was winning everything and your story about going to Beijing Olympics. And we also have the same coach. Mm. So I actually heard about you, but I think we officially met in 2012. We actually played doubles together just as a sparring match against Matt and Sawa. Yep. And uh, I remember clearly we won that one. So I'm claiming that one. So Matt and Sawa, if you're listening, we're still up. <laughs> <laughs> one nil. One zero. One zero. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So Nathan, you talk about variety of the podcast and I think that you do provide a lot of variety to all the listeners out there. So why don't we get into where you started? So I know that you said you played cricket and basketball, but how did badminton come onto the radar? And then what's the journey been like for you? Yeah, it's actually quite funny, actually. So back when I was in primary school, I used to have a family friend. We used to hang out, you know, on a weekly basis and whatnot. And then high school came around. I was in year seven and he's moved on to another school. And then we just kind of lost contact, you know, back then, you don't really have a mobile phone or anything to keep in touch. So what happened was I started being, I guess, antisocial. I was just glued to my PlayStation and then it wasn't the best lifestyle, I guess, at the time. And then my family friends' parents noticed that, you know, what happened? Like, you guys used to be so close. So one day they asked my mom, oh, does Nathan want to go play badminton and try it out after, I think it was Sunday church service. So yeah, that's how I pretty much started. So it was pretty much, they felt like I was getting a bit antisocial and they were thinking that, okay, Nathan needs to do something other than play PlayStation. So then they told me to go play and try <laughs> badminton for the first time. So what were you playing on PlayStation? At the time, I think it was Tekken. I don't know if you guys remember <laughs> yeah. Tekken. Oh, yes. Yeah, and uh, Final Fantasy. So these two were, yeah, the game at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so it started Sunday church service, after Sunday church service, and then just played badminton for fun, like literally only two hours or something. And it wasn't even anything competitive. It was just to have a hit and to socialize and get me out of the house. Yeah, yeah. I used to play Tekken, but I never had a PlayStation, so I was never good. I just used to go Eddie, the Capoeira guy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just, just <laughs> smash the buttons and hope he did some cool flips and stuff. That's literally all I did. I think that's like 99% of Tekken gamers is that just button mashing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also had to add, I wasn't doing any sports then because when you're in high school, I kind of broke away from basketball. And then I was born with asthma. So that kind of became more evident. Like I stopped sports completely. And I felt like my asthma, I wouldn't say asthma attacks, but I just felt like I was wheezing a lot more than usual. I wouldn't say there were attacks, but I would be constantly using the pump. So that was another thing. Like 
if I can play some sport and in a sense lose asthma, then yeah, it would have been perfect. It has. Ever since I picked up badminton, I actually never used the pumper or the puffer afterwards. That's great. So badminton can cure all your health issues as well, guys. (laughs) At least for me. (laughs) And give me health issues. (laughs) (laughs) It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. So Nathan, take us on a journey. You were starting to play badminton Sunday after church. Where did you go from there? Yeah, so I think naturally it kind of just snowballed from there. So I started once a week social and then my same family friend were like, oh, hey, Nathan looks like he's got a talent for this. And obviously at the time, I didn't believe them because I couldn't even hold a racket properly, I think. I wasn't too sure. And um, they were like, you want to join a training session? There's a new Chinese coach in town. Same thing. I didn't really have much say, really. My mom just asked me and I was like, yeah, let's go. So it started off there. And it started off once a week training, once a week social, and it became twice a week social, twice a week training. And it stayed like that for the next four or five years. That's how it all began, really. To be honest, it was all by luck because my coach at the time, who is actually the same coach as Jeff, he literally just came into the country And he just started his coaching in Doncaster, which is where I live in the same area as me. So yeah, I was quite lucky that, yeah, it was just there for me, available for me to try. Mm -hmm. Great coach. His name is Ricky. Shout out to Ricky for all the knowledge he's given both of us. Amazing coach and technical coach. I'm going to say best in Australia, technical coach. But anyway, so there's four or five years of training, playing a few times a week. So I assume at that point you decided to just play some local competitions and and try to get better that way. Was that, is that right? Uh, naturally, it wasn't. So like I said, our coach at the time just came into the country. So he was really social and a lot of his students wasn't that competitive actually. So there wasn't that. He didn't really push us to go play tournaments. But after a year or two in the badminton scene, I met a few people who do play tournaments I think it was a monthly basis. I can't remember at the time. So I did go and join, but it was the same thing. Like I would go and I was absolute trash. I remember one of the tournaments, I went in there and I kept getting called fault because I was actually serving illegally. As in like, I kept lifting up my leg when I was (laughs) serving and I didn't know. I had no idea. I had no coaches. I know nothing. And then when I lost the first set, my friend comes in, the one that like, told me to play tournaments. He's like, dude, you're getting faulted because you keep lifting up your foot. And I was like, oh man, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't actually play a lot of tournaments as a junior. I think I can count it in two hands. I think I've played no more than 10 tournaments literally when I was a junior. And I think five of them were for the school. So I don't think those really counted to be honest. Yeah, as a junior, I never really had a junior career. I literally just played badminton purely to socialize and just to stay fit. Mm -hmm. And then where did that switch for you? Well, it switched for me. It was really funny. So like a lot of Australians, U12 kind of kicked in. So everybody's like, oh, I need to study on focus and kind of drop something, whether it was their badminton or something. And for me at the time, my coach, for some reason, had to relocate and he wasn't coaching in Doncaster. So I just took the opportunity to just go, okay, I'm just going to take a break from badminton and study and try to get my ATA to like what I needed it to get to. The whole year, I think I played badminton like only a few months. It wasn't a lot because, you know, just study, right? I think the turning point was when I was 19 and I got into the course that I wanted to get in. I was in RMIT studying aviation, but something didn't feel right. It was like a gut feeling. Like I was studying aviation. It was something that I guess I wanted to do at the time, but it just felt off. I'll be in class, but something never felt right. I couldn't pinpoint what it was, but yeah, I I spent like a semester doing this where I was just clueless. So I was just studying, flying a plane, believe it or not. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was pretty cool. It was a bit different from other people. Yeah. It just wasn't... Yeah, it just didn't feel right until Unigames came around. 
So Uni Games was a huge thing because it was one of those tournaments where I think you get to play against all the other unis and it was held in Gold Coast. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to try and make this Uni Games team for RMIT. I went through the tryout process and for some weird reason, I don't know how our manager got a hold of Lenny, one of the coaches in Melbourne, to coach us. And then... I think it was a month leading up to uni games. We were coached by Lenny and then uni games happened. And that was like the best one and a half months that I've had in uni. And then that's when I kind of found out, hey, maybe what was missing was badminton. Yeah, it's something that I'm really enjoying. So I'm really happy that I get to play and train. So yeah, I asked my parents at the time, I was like, can you give me two years? Two years to try and pursue this badminton. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did not know if I wanted to join the national team. Did I want to play for the state? I had no clue because as a junior, my circle of friends, like they're all retired already. Mm-hmm. And like they used to be really, really good. Like they used to be in the under 13s, 15s, 17s, 19s. And some of them even end up playing like national junior tournaments and representing Australia. But you lose contact with them in uni. And I didn't know where to go from there. The kicker was after all that happened, I remember I bumped into Ricky. So I haven't seen Ricky for a year and a half or somewhere on those lines. And then Ricky was like, oh my God, Nathan, I haven't seen you in so long, whatnot. And then he said this one sentence that kind of really tipped it off for me. And it was, what happened to you? You were so good, you could have made it. At the time... It didn't resonate with me, I guess. But then once I went back home and I thought about it, I was like, what did he mean? Like, could I have made the national team? Could I have represented Australia at one of these big tournaments? I wasn't too sure, but that was a huge kicker for me because um, once he said that, I was constantly questioning about, I guess, what I wanted to do with my life. And then... That two years that I asked my parents to play, it kind of didn't fall through. And then it's been 10 years now or more than 10 (laughs) years now. So I've been playing badminton for or high level badminton for at least 10 years now. Yeah. Awesome. There's a lot there, Nathan. I think we should unpack it a little bit for the community, starting with when you were pondering what was missing in your uni life and when you couldn't pinpoint it. Just run us through what was going through your mind at the time. What are you thinking when you're in that sort of situation? You know, you're going to university, obviously, as a, you know, an Asian cultured student, you know, your parents' expectations, most of the time, I might be stereotyping, but most of the time is get a degree, get a job, etc. Run us through what was going on in your mind. So, yeah, I think you're pretty spot on there. My parents actually never actually gave me much pressure, to be honest. I wouldn't say they're westernized, but it's a thing where they didn't give you any pressure. So I ended up giving myself a lot of pressure. I felt more pressure to kind of be that Asian stereotype, which was to well, get a degree and then find a job. And at the time, being in aviation, like my dad was stoked because, you know, he was thinking that, wow, his son's going to be a pilot, you know, so he can pretty much brag about He's got a lot of bragging rights, right? So I had this enormous amount of pressure that I gave myself where I was like, okay, I really, really need to do this for them as opposed to what I really wanted to do. But again, I think most 19 year olds actually wouldn't know what they want in life. I mean, I have a lot of friends who, when they were 19, they were studying science, but then they ended up changing three, four years down the track because it wasn't something they wanted to do. So I feel like it's actually quite normal. But at that point in time, for me, it was just, it was really, really tough to focus. I remember studying really, really hard, like harder than I've ever studied before. And then I passed the exam with like flying colors, but I wasn't happy. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, cool. I get to learn how to take off a plane now, a little Cessna plane. But even then it wasn't like cool. I remember sitting down with my friends and they'll be like, oh, you know, you can fly a plane. And then it wasn't one of those things where I was super like proud of. It was just one of those things, yeah, you know, I learned how to take off or I learned how to land the plane. 
but it wasn't something that I was super proud of talking about. It was just, you know, it's just normal. (laughs) It felt normal at least, but it wasn't satisfying. It definitely wasn't satisfying and it definitely wasn't, just wasn't right. So from my perspective, it's so cool that you can fly a plane. (laughs) That's one of the things I'd like to do once in my life, fly a plane. But even though it's going to take me more than once in my life to actually build the skill. So when you think about that and you're looking back with hindsight now, do you think it was very much a gut decision? Like I've listened to different podcasts here and there, actually a lot of podcasts here and there, but there was one particular one that spoke about listening to your intuition. There's quite a few of those that I've listened to and knowing the difference between what's just the chatter in your head that's just making up all these sorts of weird, strange things based on your emotions at that time versus knowing truly like with your gut and intuition what it is. And what they defined was that if it's just chatter, if it is just your mind playing tricks on you or just your mind just being uncomfortable in the current situation, which sometimes we have to be uncomfortable to grow, right? So if it is just that, then the thoughts will be changing. The thoughts will be fleeting. They'll be like, one day you want to do this, the next week you want to do this, and they'll change a lot. But then the intuition in this person's mind is that it doesn't change. You go do different things and it's still there and the feeling is still always there. Does that resonate with you? And did you have another way of knowing that that was the right choice? Yeah, wow. Um, that's, that's a really good way to describe it. Yeah, I think you're really, really spot on. It was definitely a gut feeling. It wasn't chatter. Like I said, it didn't feel right. So after the whole training for this uni games, and I felt really, really happy. I thought that was all in my head. But then afterwards, two coaches at the time, so Lenny and both Ricky kind of catapulted me by saying a few things. And that's something that you got to, I think as a player, you got to really trust the coaches, if that makes sense. So both of them said that I had something. They didn't really tell me that I was talented or, but they thought that I had a shot at this, at this badminton, but they didn't really put it that straightforward either. They were just kind of like, I remember Lenny was like, oh, Nathan, you can play singles. You look like you can play singles. Oh, and also fun fact, I never wanted to be a singles player. I always wanted to be a doubles player because I was just so, <laughs> yeah, because I was so lazy. I just did not want to play singles because I knew there was so much court to cover. So, yeah, anyways, so Lenny at the time was like, oh, Nathan, you, you actually can play singles. You should try it out. And again, I didn't really, that was on the back of my mind, but I didn't really listen to her. Mm. Yeah. And then Ricky came along, our coach, and then he also said something like that. So these two coaches definitely really, reinforced, reinforced that gut feeling because I was actually, again, was it my mind playing tricks on me or was it this gut feeling? So with that confirmation by these two coaches, I kind of took it and tried badminton. And I guess the thing about listening to your gut is that it doesn't always mean that you'll be successful, right? So even if you listen to your gut and you know that this is what I really want to do, this is what really gets me out of bed in the morning, it doesn't automatically guarantee success. And I think that that is something that's often misconstrued. I think a lot of people think, oh, you listen to your intuition and because you've listened to it, you're just going to succeed because you've listened to it, which isn't actually the case, right? Yeah. So when you said that two years turned to 10 years or more than 10 years of badminton, you've had this drive, this motivation, this gut feeling that you've been that you really want to be on the court, you want to be training, you want to be competing. But I'm sure during that period of time, there were some challenges and some setbacks that really would have hit you hard, right? Because badminton and being an athlete is not all rainbows and butterflies. There's a lot of hard work and a lot of disappointment involved as well. Even though this is your calling, you can still be disappointed. So take us through what you went through with those two years and where you trained, what you did and what happened. Yeah, so this is really, really tough. I feel like these next two years was actually two of the more tougher years for me because like I said, I didn't know where to begin. I didn't have any connections with coaches at the time. And I didn't know what pathway there was to try to... like At the time, I knew I wanted to play badminton for Australia now. So I really wanted to be in the national team. But I didn't know how to get there. I was 19 and... I'm trying to be a professional badminton player at 19 when as a junior, I never took badminton seriously. 
So these next two years was just me figuring out how to get there. And to be honest, I didn't actually do anything. It was so funny. I set out to do this, but all I did was just play badminton every day on a very social basis. And at one point in my life, I kind of just woke up. I was like, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm literally just wasting time. And then my so-called dream to play for Australia, it's not going to happen by me playing a lot of socials. So at that point in time, I gave my coach a call and I was like, oh, hey, Ricky, is there some way that I can be of help to the national team? Whether it's to come in and help feed shuttles or be a sparring partner. And then Ricky's like, look, I'll see what I can do, but there's no guaranteed. And then I don't know how he secured it, but he got me to come in to just spar with the women's team. And at the time, again, I wanted to be a doubles player. So I played some women's doubles. <laughs> I actually got smashed. <laughs> I got smashed. Like it was actually Rosie and it might have been Kate. I can't remember, but absolutely annihilated. I couldn't do anything. I was just like, Ricky saw it and I'm pretty sure Kate and um, Rosie at the time, the two women's double specialists was like, you know what? He's not good enough. Kick him out or like tell him to do something else. And then I think Ricky felt bad for me. So he's like, Nathan, go try women's singles. Go play some women's singles. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I was also absolute trash. <laughs> I was absolute trash. Like I couldn't cover the court. I couldn't react to... I can't remember who was the player at the time, but I remember the player would drop and I'll just stand there or like she'll punch clear me. And then that was it. And then I was just like, wow, this is really, really bad. I don't think I could ever play for Australia. So that was like a huge wake up call for me. I was like, wow, you are hopeless. (laughs) Actually, I was like that. There's no way if you can't even play. I'm not trying to be sexist or anything, but I just couldn't compete with the women, let alone the men's singles and men's doubles players, which is what I wanted to excel in. So I had a word with Ricky and he's like, look, you're not going to make it in doubles. Australia's men's doubles is really, really strong. You're not going to make it because it's going to be quite tough. But men's singles, there's a possibility. If you try hard enough, there's a possibility. And then I was like, oh man, I have to cover the whole singles court. This is too hard, man. But anyways, that's how I transitioned over. So now I'm 21, 22, roughly. And they're telling me to go train singles at that age. You know, I'm an adult now. I'm Mm. not a junior anymore. And I thought about it and I was like, look, I don't think I can make it. There's no way. And at the time, I don't know how I got a connection, but I got a connection to train in Indonesia. It's actually a club that Jeff trained in as well. I somehow got a connection through another coach that I met and I literally just packed up my bags and I flew over to Indonesia to train. And this was the first time I've been in in Asia training. I've never trained anything like this before. We're talking about six to eight hours every day. And then I stayed there for nearly three months, I think. And all I remember was a lot of running, I picked up a lot of shuttles <laughs> and a lot of food poisoning, believe it or not. <laughs> That's all I remember that three months. I don't remember learning much. I just remember losing every single match, every single day. Training was hard as, you know, morning running, afternoon smash net for like two hours. And that was the session. And that a night session where you do an hour and a half of footwork. And then that was it. So that was huge for me because that's actually something that I was lacking because I've never actually done any formal professional training, but I've experienced three months of it. And yeah, that was a huge turning point for me again, because after that, I came back into Australia and I played my first tournament, Ballarat Open. I remember this very, very clearly because I beat a national player and it's also a good friend of Jeff's and I'm claiming this one as well. I beat Salia in the second oh. round of Ballard Open in men's singles. I know Salia was a doubles player. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, but I beat Salia in doubles. And then I was like, whoa, wow. I just beat Australian representative and I'm pretty much like a nobody, right? So 
And then after that, I lost to somebody that quote unquote, I shouldn't lose to. And, but anyway, that win was huge for me because I was like, cool. Now maybe I have a chance. (laughs) Maybe I have a chance of representing Australia or playing in the national team. Yeah. That's how it all started really two, three years after that. Mm -hmm. And then you said you trained in Indonesia and where else did badminton training take you? Oh, badminton training take me. I only really trained in Indonesia. So that was a huge eye opener for me because that had some type of structure. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that I really, really needed that we couldn't get in Australia. I think like one of your previous podcasts, I think it was Rachel's podcast, a lot of the coaches in Australia, it's all business related. So it's business comes first. So there was no real formal training outside of the national team. It was all like really business-like kind of coaching. And I don't blame the coaches. So me experiencing all the running and all the footwork and all this stuff that was needed to become a good badminton player, that kind of skill or that kind of exposure really helped me because now I kind of have a blueprint of what I needed to do to maintain that, to try to be a better badminton player, I guess. Where did it take me? Well. I kind of somehow just jumped the whole B grade, C grade and D grade kind of thing. And I started playing in open tournaments for some weird reason. I don't know why. I wasn't exactly sure was it that three months training. It probably was, but I was able to compete in open. I was never going to win, but I could always get to round two or round three. And that's where I stayed for like the next two, three years actually. But even then it wasn't that great. But because of that formal training and understanding how to train and how to work in a team environment, I was actually, I wouldn't say invited, but I actually got to go back to the Australian national team to pretty much help out and be a sparring partner. So I was just floating around in the national team really of Australia, but I wasn't really officially part of the national team. I was just kind of in there to help out the Mm -hmm. players that were coming and going and whatnot. It felt nice. Like it felt good. That felt so much better than what I was doing in uni, to be honest. Yeah. And when you were invited back, this was to the men's event this time or? Um, no, well, it was actually just sparring. So I actually played everything. Like, although I was a men's singles player, I played a lot of women's doubles to help out the women's team. A lot of women's singles to help out the women's singles player at the time. I played a little bit of doubles, not a lot because I was just not good enough. And then men's singles. But even then, men's singles, I think Jeff at the time was... Slowed down a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. slowing down a bit. So there wasn't really any other men's singles players. Occasionally, we had a few that would come in, but they weren't full-time like what I was. So I just kind of stayed in the loop of things in the national setup as a sparring partner. And I improved heaps because it was one of the only places in Melbourne where you can train professionally, you know, on a full-time basis. Yeah. Mm. And so now if we talk about the time horizon of you going to Indonesia for those three months and badminton taking you elsewhere to get all this formalized education and understanding of how badminton is played and trained around the world, because I presume you went to more than just Indonesia. Is that correct, Nathan? I traveled to play tournaments around the world out of my own pocket. Some were actually funded by the national team because we had a huge team that goes to the same country for the same tournaments. So, you know, you started getting a little bit of international exposure. That was eye-opener for me because to a certain extent, I felt like, oh, wow, I have the Australian flag on my chest and I had Australia on my back of my shirt. And I was really, really proud. So I was like, hey, maybe my dream's kind of coming true, kind of coming true. But it also wasn't really true because I wasn't officially part of the team. I was just kind of like this sparring partner. But anyways, yes, I traveled a bit. I wouldn't say a lot. My whole international career, I reckon I've had less than 30 international tournaments to my name, which is very, very little because some of these people who go for Olympics play 20 to 25 tournaments in one year. So I know my international career is, is already like 10, eight years or nine years. And I've only played like a total of like 30 to 40 tournaments. So it's not a lot, but it was enough for me to be like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And 
yeah, I can see myself doing this mm-hmm. for as long as I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to that, of course, for someone playing badminton in Australia, there's not much money involved, right? So when did you, cause I do know that you do coaching as well, and that helps to support your lifestyle, your living expenses, et cetera. But when did you start to get into the coaching part of it? And how has that affected your badminton in general and the way that you look at things? Yeah, so I started coaching on and off in 2016. It was just purely because I had a few friends actually who wanted to do some coaching. So I charged them very, very little and I was just helping them, but I never actually really enjoyed it to be honest because it was just so hard to coach your friends, I guess. But yeah, I started when I was 26, in 2016 and it was really, really basic, I guess. I was just coaching maybe two hours a week. And then coaching never really took off until 2018 when I made the decision to leave the national setup, as in stop being a sparring partner. Mm-hmm. And I kind of started coaching on a full-time basis. So we're talking about 20 or maybe 30 more hours a week. And yeah, coaching was huge. I wish I took it up earlier, actually, because I found out that when you coach somebody something, the perspective of a particular shot is different. And then you yourself get a better understanding of it. And then because you coach so many different players, you find out you have a lot of different perspectives. Like I remember one of the kids was like, I couldn't drop. And I was trying to teach him how to drop. And then I found out that, oh, wow, it's actually that easy. Like, because in the back of my mind, I thought the drop shot was actually really, really hard. But then I had to describe to this kid as basic as I possibly can. And then in return, that kind of helped my drop shot. And I find that that was amazing. And that was something that my coach actually told me to try to do earlier in my career. He was like, you know what? You should come out and coach. And again, I didn't listen to him. I wish I listened to him because yeah, he was always right. (laughs) So coaching started becoming full-time when I was 2018. 2018, I started coaching full-time. And I'm still coaching full-time now on top of the full-time training. Coaching is very good, but it is tiring as well. It does take it out of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again... This is another thing. Like, I know I want to do this for the rest of my life because as tiring as it is, I am still willing to coach. Like, I remember there was days where I would coach six hours. And on my last student, I can still somehow muscle up some type of energy to get that session going because I genuinely really, really like coaching or badminton. So yeah, that was another thing that also made me realize how much I like the sport and love the sport. Awesome. So... Nathan, when we first started talking about having you on the podcast, there was a kind of like a take home or a particular message you wanted to convey to, especially the younger generation of badminton players out there that maybe they don't see the future in badminton for themselves, or maybe they want to, but they might think it's not possible. What advice would you give to them based on what you've gone through? And like you said, you didn't do much in juniors. You were just playing a little bit. You had to start your professional career at 21, 22 years old, change events completely to men's singles, which I always say this on the podcast, which is the hardest event out of all of them. I'm very biased towards that. But all the other events are definitely hard, but men's singles also very, very demanding. So what would your message be for those younger players out there? Yeah, so over the years, and I'm sure you guys can both agree, we had actually a lot of men's singles. This is purely a lot of badminton players that had a lot of talent. And I feel like they could have done very well on the world stage. I'm talking about, you know, maybe even top 100 it's hard to say now, but they all stop really, really early in their career. And I find it really, really funny because a lot of times when you get older and you mature a bit, the way you play badminton follows suit. You still have to train hard, but with age and maturity, I guess experience as well, you become a really, really good badminton player later on in your career, as opposed to when you're 19, 20, 21. I feel like a lot of badminton players in Australia should really look at the Europeans. They don't really peak until their mid-20s because they finally accumulated X amount of time on court. They finally have that maturity to apply the stuff that they learned. And then that's when things kind of start clicking, if that makes sense. But a lot of our 
badminton players, especially my juniors, they quit when they're 19 or 20 for no real apparent reason. They tell me it's because of uni, but what I'm asking from them is not to stop badminton completely. You can just train three times a week, which I feel like a lot of these kids do have time for. And do that until your mid-20s and see what happens because they will be so surprised at how good they've become after four or five years if they can continue this. It doesn't have to be too intense, but as long as they're still training for the next four or five years after their junior careers, they'll be amazed at where they will be. Because for someone like me who started at 22 and then finally I have a shot at maybe representing... Australia at the Thomas Cup. It's amazing. Like, I don't know how to explain it to a lot of people. I feel like a lot of our teammates or ex-juniors could have done the same. I reckon we could have had some representatives at the last Olympics and even the London Olympics because those players at the time were so good, but they just quit early. Yeah, I think it's a very common theme in, say, Australia. And I know it is in, like, say, New Zealand or Canada or the US and a lot of different countries where there's a choice between what needs to be made and can you choose both instead of just choosing one? And I think that in today's kind of standards and lifestyles where options are always abundant, I think that we're moving towards the fact that you can choose more than one thing. If you want to go all out for one particular thing, then that's fair enough as well. But we're just hoping because we're the badminton podcast that we keep people in the sport because it's going to help build players build the players for our country, but for all countries. And when the players of all countries get better, then the whole profile of the sport gets better as well. Yeah. You summed it up so much better than how I did it. But yeah, exactly. I feel like it's so cliche, but if I did it, then I'm pretty sure a lot of my ex-teammates who retired early, they could have made it as well. I 100% believe that. I mean, it wasn't easy. I'm not saying that my road to where I am now was easy. These guys are so much more talented than me and they just needed to give themselves that chance. And then they would have been pretty surprised. And Nathan, now continuing on with your journey when you did start coaching and from that point until now, tell us what happened. How did you get from traveling with the Australian team as a sparring partner to now potentially representing Australia at the Thomas Cup? Yeah, so these next two years were quite crazy. I left the national setup because it was getting a bit tiring, I guess, because again, I felt like I've reached my peak already. I've plateaued and I feel like there wasn't much to give anymore. So the next two years, I actually was doing coaching and I trained on the side a little bit, but it wasn't anything as intense as the national team because like I said, once you leave the national setup, there isn't much training outside. And luckily enough, two of my teammates at the time also decided to, not decided not to train, but I think they had work commitments. So then they weren't allowed, they couldn't train full-time the national setup. So they needed to train outside of the national setup. So the three of us kind of just joined up together and then we just started training in one of the local clubs together and that feeling came back again that feeling of oh my god I miss training and I want to give this a crack again and see what happens so for me yeah the next two years was a big change for me because I started to be really accountable for my training so I started to somewhat plan out my trainings and what I needed to do and hold myself accountable for my own training. So now no coaches, just me and my two, three teammates was training together. And my results were amazing. They were actually better than I've ever had before. And I'm already at the age of 28 now. (laughs) And I played and I tried really, really hard. And my results was better. A lot of people were telling me that you're too old. You're too old. 28 is too old. You're not going to make it anymore. But then it was actually the opposite. I was getting really, really good results. I think at nationals, I was a semi-finalist. And then at one of the local tournaments, I made the finals. And I just lost out to, I guess at the time, the Australian number one or two. So I felt like, hey, I have a shot at it again. Then 2019 came along and I changed up my training a bit more. Again, it was a huge learning process because now you're on your own. 
2019, I changed up my training and the results were, well, again, even better than 2018. And it wasn't until the start of 2020 when we played the National Association Championships. I definitely peaked at the right time. And I made it to the semifinals of the Oceania Championships and Nationals. Again, it wasn't winning it, but to be able to do that at the age of 30, when my competition was, you know, everybody seemed to be below 21 years old or 22 years old was something that I wouldn't say wasn't unheard of, but it was quite, it was a good achievement in my sense. And at that same time was these two tournaments also determined who would make it to Thomas Cup. And I actually, I didn't think too much of it. I mean, that was one of my goals to make Thomas Cup. But prior to this, I've missed the 2018 one, even though at the time the results was quite good. So I didn't think too much of it. And when the name list came out, I was actually quite surprised. I was over the moon because now I made the Thomas Cup team. So it kind of officially means I'm part of the national team as opposed to being a aspiring partner. And that was a huge achievement for me because 10 years now, I've been playing badminton at this level. And finally, at the age of 30, I'm officially part of the Australian national team. So it was a huge achievement for me. Congratulations, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, with all the knowledge that you've accumulated throughout your career so far, Nathan, and I know that you've had some really good coaches like Ricky, who just brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to badminton and to yourself. If we're going to start wrapping up here, are there any kind of pieces of advice that you would give to someone that you've either learned directly from them or you've figured out yourself that you think, if I'd known it and taken it on board, that would have been something that would have been really beneficial for me? Yeah, so I've got a few. But number one, the most simplest one, believe it or not, is to trust your coach. I feel like... At the time when my coaches told me all this stuff, I never really truly believed them. I wouldn't say I questioned them, but because I never truly believed them, I I never really fulfilled what they wanted me to do. So your coach has definitely been in your shoes and they're not there to ruin your career. They're actually there to help your badminton. So definitely one of the advice is to trust your coach because I feel like this is super important. Another one is be accountable for yourself. There's a lot of times where I see the juniors, they always complain about training. Training is not good enough. I need to change coaches. But actually, it might not actually be that. It might be you have to ask yourself, did I really put in 110% that day? So be accountable. A lot of the times we tend to seem to want to blame certain things as to why we're not at that level. And that's something that I've learned. You just got to be accountable for your own actions and your own training. I feel like that's super important. And a third advice, there's this thing that I always think about, and I think it applies to not just badminton. There's two factors that make, make you successful in anything. One of them is luck. I feel like a lot of people forget about luck. Like luck plays a huge role in if you can make it or not make it. And you can't control that. So for example, on match point, the guy hits a net roll and gets a point, you know, like you can't control that or the luck of the draw. You can't control that. And that's also the same with life, right? Sometimes you can't get the job interview because of something. And the other factor that really that people should factor in when they're doing not just badminton, but life is human factor. I guess your popularity, your people skills. I feel like a lot of people forget that sometimes certain people might not like you for a certain reason. So you don't get selected in the team for a particular reason, not because you're not likable, but because I don't know how to explain this. It's just a human factor that a lot of people forget because during my career, there was a lot of times, I think 2018 Thomas Cup, I they selected five men singles players. And for some weird reason, I wasn't selected when my results and my ranking at the time were top three in Australia. And at the end of the day, I couldn't really blame anybody other than people's skills, I guess. It wasn't like maybe the selectors didn't know who I was or maybe the selectors didn't like me. Yeah, you have to factor that in when you're doing anything in life, luck and people skills. Because I think if I had to put it into like business terms, it's like 
your manager not liking you, so they're not giving you a promotion. But he doesn't really have a reason why he doesn't like you. He just doesn't like you. So yeah, that's something that I learned over my career, which is these two factors that we seem to overlook. We forget about sometimes it takes a bit of luck. And sometimes it also takes a bit of that. What do you want to call that? People skills. The human element. Like it, I don't know how to explain because I've had students who had really, really good results. And then they didn't make it into the state team or they didn't make it into the state one team. And they get really, really annoyed. But then they don't look at the bigger picture. You're a really, really good singles player. But then they had enough singles players. So they needed a doubles player in the team. That's why they didn't select you. But then that kid wouldn't take it that way. They wouldn't factor that in. He would just factor in like something else. And he'll be really, really annoyed with himself. And I feel like, yeah, that's something that listeners or other people should factor in into their careers. That luck and people skills or human factor, I guess, is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think there's a, I guess, more formal or eloquent way to explain it, Nathan. I think you explained it perfectly well. It's just there are often reasons why people get overlooked and it's not something that is easily explained. And like you said, there's an element of luck. There's an element of that relationship development and human element that you just can't sort of pinpoint. And unfortunately, it happens to all of us, regardless of whether it is being able to be selected in a state team or land a job interview or the job itself, right? Sometimes you either luck out or sometimes something happens and and there's always going to be unknown factors at play that we don't know about and we have no control of as well. So it's important to recognize that sometimes you just have to let it play out. But your story is incredible, Nathan. I think our listeners would would get a lot of value from that because as we all know, so many badminton players so talented or even hardworking decide that they're not going to continue badminton you know, when they get to that 18 to 22 years old, right? Whereas you've gone the opposite. You've started at 21, 22. And I think that resonates with a lot of people and it definitely resonates with me as well, Nathan. So if there were listeners out there wanting to, you know, get some more sage advice from you, Nathan, just to understand your journey a bit more, potentially get some coaching or just even to have a chat, how would our audience get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the only social media that I'm pretty active on is Instagram. You can just find me there. I think you can just type in Nathan Tang. It should be there. But my username is actually Light and Tangy. So L-I-T-E-A-N-D-T-A-N-G-Y. Light and Tangy Chips. I don't think they sell them anymore, do they? Correct. I haven't seen them for years. The green bag? Yeah. Green bag. That, that's actually, yeah, the green. Light green. The light green bag. Light green's yeah. chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually where I got the inspiration yeah, yeah. from. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, Nathan. So we're going to start wrapping up here. So from behalf of myself and Henry and all the listeners out there who would have thoroughly enjoyed our chat today, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome. So for everyone listening out there, we do really hope that you got a lot from this podcast episode. Just remember that age isn't always a barrier that everyone thinks it might be. But if you do have the will, the motivation, the passion to do something, just do it and prove them wrong. And even if you don't make it at the end of the day, you've done what's true to your heart. And when you get out of bed every morning, go to sleep at night, you know that you are doing something that means something real to you instead of just living by the footsteps of what is perceived that you should do in those situations. So it's about breaking those boundaries and living to your true self. And living to our true selves here at the Badminton Podcast, that means playing more badminton, sharing more badminton with everyone that we love. So if you have enjoyed this episode, make sure you do share it with all of your friends, your family, your teammates, your students, if you're a coach, your coach if you're a student, etc. because we do want to share the love of the sport with everyone and share all of the combined knowledge to build our badminton community throughout the world so that everyone gets better as players and as people. Now, if you want to get in contact with us, so myself or Henry at Volant or the Badminton Podcast, you can easily do so. Our Instagram handle for the Badminton Podcast is at the Badminton Podcast, no spaces. Or you can jump onto our website, www.volantware.com. There's also some cool basics there that you can get to kit up 
ready to play badminton as well. Volant also has Instagram and Facebook. It's just Volant Wear and YouTube where we do release some cool videos from time to time, including some product videos and some fun videos as well. So make sure you do reach out if you've got any questions for us, if you've got any suggestions for some topics. If you have a guest that you'd like to hear, please let us know. We'd love to serve you and to bring you more and more episodes of the podcast. So from all of us here, from Nathan, myself and Henry, thank you again for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay safe till then and adios. Goodbye. Bye. Bye guys. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Volantware, the most versatile badminton apparel you'll ever own.